Hello and welcome to this Faber podcast. My name is George Miller, and I'm very pleased to say that my guest in this special edition of the programme is 2010 Orange Prize winner Barbara Kingsolver, who won the prize for her latest novel, The Lacuna. The book was described by the chair of the judges as possessing breathtaking scale and containing shattering moments of poignancy. Barbara has written that the writing of fiction is a dance between truth and invention, and that dance is everywhere apparent in the lacuna. It tells the story of Harrison Shepard, a self-effacing writer in the middle decades of the 20th century, a double person, as he is described, made of two different boxes. The unwanted child of a Mexican mother and an American father, the young Harrison is left to his own devices to explore the shoreline of Mexico's Isla Pixol, which is where he encounters the first lacuna in the book, in this case a sea tunnel that takes him into a mysterious forest. There are many other lacunae to come in the book, gaps in the narrative, documents missing or destroyed. The whole thing an assemblage of fragments, letters, journals, clippings, put together by his loyal friend and assistant Violet Brown. And the dance of truth and invention? Well, the young shepherd works for muralist Diego Rivera and his painter-wife Frida Kahlo, first as a paint mixer and then as a chef. And it's through them that Trotsky, on the run from Stalin, comes into his life. Shepard becomes his secretary and is shattered by his assassination, an event which will propel him back to the United States. And his association with Trotsky will be picked over in years to come, when the now famous novelist falls victim to post-war McCarthyism. With such a large, complex novel, I wondered if Barbara could tell me about its genesis, the seed from which it sprang. It came from a lot of places. I am enough of a scientist to know that I can't really give you an accurate answer. There's no control group. You know, I don't know exactly what led to this book except for the, you know, the 50 years of living (laughs) that I did first. I can remember a few moments, though, when a conversation or an event led me to write notes to put in the file that I called for years notes to a future historian. That was the t- that was the working title of this book until I found its true name. One was m- many years uh, before I really began working on the book in earnest. I had a conversation with my secretary about correspondence, letters, records in the office that I wanted to throw away, and she said, "You shouldn't throw those away." My assistant at that time was named Emma Hardesty, a very wise woman who said, Barbara, that's that's part of history. And we had a very good-natured disagreement about that because I didn't think it was history. I thought it was my stuff and that, <laughs> that I didn't want anyone reading and I should throw away. And so we sort of jokingly referred to these things as notes for future for future historians and um, didn't throw them away. And, you know, of course, it's nothing nearly as good as what Harrison Shepard stashes away in this book. But that was the first time I really began thinking about the public and private life and what people really have the right to know about a person who, who is gone. And I always listen with a certain amount of skepticism to these conversations about, oh, what we've discovered about Shakespeare and his real life and who he really 
was in love with and so forth. And I just think, leave the poor man alone. I actually come down on the side of of the the artist's right to privacy. But it's an interesting conversation that I began to have in my head. And that was one of the early germs of the novel. There were many others because the novel is about many different things. Who knows where they all began? Tell me about Mexico then, because that's a very important place. Half of the novel at least takes place in Mexico. So at what point did it begin to exert a fascination on your imagination? I lived in Tucson, Arizona for uh, nearly 25 years, I guess. I moved there when I was 23 and didn't plan on staying, but I, I, I plan on staying a weekend and I, and I sort of got stuck there for a couple of decades. Tucson is very near the Mexican border. It is a city that at that time anyhow was kind of half Mexican anyway. I raised my daughters there going to schools where a third of their classmates spoke Spanish in their homes and uh, there was this sort of flow back and forth of Mexican culture across the border. Mexico was a place that fascinated me for a lot of reasons, political, cultural, linguistic, and I traveled there a lot as a tourist, as a journalist, as a writer. In many different capacities, I traveled all over Mexico, learned to speak Spanish, learned my way around the culture. I did, you know, I had rites of passage. I had a, a car accident in Mexico, which is uh, an education. <laughs> I learned that anything that's broken can be fixed in Mexico. It just takes some time. I really love the way Mexican culture celebrates its history and its artists. And something that I always noticed is the way that Mexico celebrates its political artists as as national heroes. Diego Rivera is a good example. And the murals, public art, and especially public art that contains popular history is very, very important in Mexico. And I always wondered why why we in the US are so nervous about political art and the sort of documentation of our struggles and our mistakes in art is not something we put on the walls in the US. So when I began thinking about a novel that would really be about art and politics, I knew that it had to cross the border. I liked that notion of a flow back and forth in this novel that would expose readers to two very different ways of looking at art and politics. And then you must have made a decision that you wanted to bring on real historical characters, I mean, important characters. You mentioned Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo and, mm -hmm. and Trotsky are, mm -hmm. are very important to this novel. Mm -hmm. what, what particular issues did, did that present to you as a novelist in, in dealing with history within the novel? First and foremost, a historical novel is going to be about research. So I spent years just reading, reading books about the history of the Mexican Revolution, reading about the history of World War II in the U.S., what it was like to live in those times, 
reading high history and low history, popular books, scholarly books. I was ultimately, of course, interested in the era that we now call the McCarthy era, the, the communist witch hunts, a time when people in my country were at risk of losing their jobs, even going to prison for suspicion of communism. And suspicion of communism could mean anything. It could mean that you were that someone said that they had seen you with someone who maybe one time had been to a union meeting or whatever. I mean, it was a, it was a dreadful and frightening time that I knew would be the, the climax of my novel. So I backed up to see what led to this, what roads led people to this very frightened moment in history. So that meant backing up into the war, reading a lot about Truman, reading a lot about FDR. Um, so these were real people that I wanted to um, have weigh in on my novel. And of course, if I was going to write about Mexican political art, I thought, why not go back that far and have this character somehow enter the lives and the homes of some of these really colorful political artists. And I was more interested in Diego frankly, than Frida, because I didn't think, I thought there would be problems. I thought that, I didn't see how she fit into my novel. But when I, when I began doing the research in Mexico, when I went to the studios and the homes of Diego and Frida, and when I read their letters and their ledgers and all of the, all of these notes to some future historian that I myself would have thrown away, but they kept, I discovered so many things that were intriguing to me that not only satisfied my curiosity, but answered a lot of questions and helped me to propose new questions. They were very, it was very useful to me to see the personal notes that Frida had made all over, you know, all over Diego's ledgers, for example. I saw her as a living person who would have a lot to contribute to my novel. So I brought her in. And then the rest of the story is that I had to struggle to get her back out again because she's such a, a scene stealer. She wanted to be everywhere. She wanted it to be her novel. That I couldn't have, but she did become very important. I guess breathing life into these characters is what novelists do. But, but when you're dealing with a historical character, what are the particular challenges? You know, you, you've described all the research and imbibing all of that. But then when it comes to actually capturing on the page, are you sometimes drawn in, in two directions with historical truth in one direction, sort of artistic ambitions in the other? It was a very different kind of challenge because as you say, I didn't need to breathe life into these characters. They had already lived. I w um, was able to use them as his, part of the historical structure of the novel because they were very well documented. I I knew where these people were on every day of the period of time that my novel was set. I knew when Frida went into the hospital, when she came home, when Diego got a contract to go and work in San Francisco, when Frida joined him, when someone went to jail, when someone came home, when someone was shot. This was all in the record. So what I had to do was make my plot plans collide and mesh in a in an appropriate way with the historical record. So it's not really that different from 
other challenges of writing a, an historical novel. If you're going to write about Vermeer or if you're going to write about World War II, you're handed the evidence of what really happened and then you really just work your own characters into it in a way that doesn't contradict what's already known. So these characters in some sense I had to treat as as setting, as the sort of given part of my novel and then work with them. And I didn't change anything. If Frida was in the hospital on a given day, then that's where she went in my novel. So in some ways, the plot is simpler because a lot is already decided for you. But in other ways, it's more complicated because you have to figure out ways of getting someone from here to there that makes sense. And one, I mean, one difference between writing about Vermeer that occurs to me is that the characters you're writing about are quite conscious of their own image. They're conscious that their actions will be either reported or distorted or invented by the press. And so it's 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 almost like a sort of foregrounded issue, how people's images are taken up and represented out there in the world. You're absolutely right. And that worked very well for me because one of the things I wanted to write about in this novel is celebrity the notion of celebrity and gossip and how gossip gets passed on as news or masquerades as news and why people want to read it and how destructive it is for everyone involved when people get all wrapped up with celebrity and gossip instead of the things that they should be paying attention to instead that matter more, frankly, to their lives. And how damaging it is for a person who is perceived as famous to be treated with hostility and incivility with the, the with which we treat our public persons. The sort of hatefulness that's allowed to prevail against anyone who's in the least considered famous. All of those things interest me and seemed related to to the to the larger themes of this novel. So Frida and Diego were and Trotsky in in three different ways were perfect foils, I suppose, or perfect representatives is a better way to put it of what I wanted to write about because they were Frida and Diego were kind of some of the first celebrities, sort of artistic celebrities of modern times. They were the most photographed people. They were written about. They were The newspapers were full of lies about Frida and Diego every day. The, the press was very unkind to Frida. Frida had her specific ways of dealing with that, of coping with that, that were very different from the ways that you or I might cope. And my character, Harrison Shepard, was a sort of a, an opposite person. He was a very, very shy person who coped with his eventual fame by trying to become invisible. So the the chemistry between between my narrator and Frida Kahlo was very interesting to me because they had the they were able to have these conversations about celebrity that were that could be very revealing to the reader and that could say the things that I wanted to say or ask the questions I wanted to ask. Mm. That was one of the great pleasures of the book for me, seeing that relationship between them develop. And there's a passage when, just after Trotsky has come to stay in, in their house, Harrison is keeping a, a journal, a sort of record of what is going on in the house, and he's passing it weekly to Frida. And I, I really loved the, the way in which 
he was able to communicate by very subtle means his feelings, although the, the journal was supposed to have been expunged of, of feelings, but he was able to communicate his feelings and you can see their, the sort of ebb and flow of their relationship in that writing. Uh, yeah, that was that was really fun. The and also very difficult. This this novel is made of it's presented as journal fragments that have been saved for one reason or another and for reasons that ultimately are sort of surprises to the reader as you go along there are these mysteries that get resolved. But this poor kid just needs to write things down. He's He has a terrible life. His mother didn't want him, and she tells him that continually. She'd be better off if he'd never been born. He's just a person who's never felt he had any right to exist. And the way he attaches himself to the world is to keep these diaries, which are always cryptic. He hides them under his bed. His mother do doesn't want him to write. The guy that he lives with when he's a servant in the in the Rivera household doesn't want him to write. He says, oh, he thinks he's a spy. He keeps re reporting on him. And, and then later when Trotsky comes, they say for security reasons, no diaries, no journals. But they sort of have a heart and they say, well, you can keep the official record of the household, which he does. But you can't write anything personal no opinions and no uh, feelings. So, so yeah, he has to slip everything between the lines. And because he knows Frida is the only person who's actually reading this, it, it's sort of like he's passing her notes cryptically. And uh, sometimes she takes his advice. Sometimes she ignores what he's told her and, and really hurts, uh, hurts his feelings. But he's continually trying to communicate somehow with the world through his words. And through all these diaries, for the first 300, uh, nearly 300 pages of the book, he never uses the first person pronoun, which is the most difficult thing I have ever done. But it had to be that way. I didn't want this to be a gushy, confessional, you know, dear diary kind of thing. That's just, I mean, yuck. I knew I wanted this to be a very spare, sort of, th this, this, to be true to this, this narrator, he's, he's a person who observes others but he never wants the camera turned on himself so he doesn't say I went for a walk he he says the sea opened itself like a pair of hands in terms of craft in terms of the challenges as of the writing that was the most difficult thing to do he never says I am until this wondrous thing happens in his life that allows him to feel like he's a real person I thought it was a huge achievement. I found myself going back over scenes and thinking, how did you actually manage that? Because his archivist and friend, Violet Brown, compares him to a, a camera. You know, mm -hmm. he's like a photographer. But it seemed to me he was like a photographer whom you quite often glimpsed in the mirror. He wasn't, he wasn't <laughs> taking a picture of himself, but if you looked carefully, you kind of saw a reflection from what he was saying. And I thought it was, it was marvellous the way you, you, you had managed to pull that off without it seeming artificial. You know, it was, it was a third-person narration, but it wasn't an omniscient third-person narration. That's right, because as the reader, I need you to engage with this this kid, and I want you to care about him, and you only care about him if you know him. So it's it's kind of like the trick of the unreliable narrator. How do I allow you to know a person who does not want to be known? So yeah, it took lots and lots of revision. For the first several years, I was trying to do this strange personless narration, and I would give drafts to friends to read or to you know my agent or whatever and they all said well 
this is dumb. You should just let him say I. <laughs> and it wasn't helpful because I knew that it wasn't working, but I knew also that I needed to write the book in this way. If I could do this, which I don't think any writer has ever done before, if I could do this, it, it could be spectacular. So when you're training for a marathon and your friends say, oh, knock it off, you know, take a break, watch TV, eat a sandwich, then at some point you say, I'm sorry, but just I'm I'm not going to involve you in my training anymore. <laughs> I'm just going to go this alone. So usually when I'm writing, I give, you know, a handful of people, my husband and close friends, drafts to read as I'm going along, which give me sort of con continuous feedback and a certain kind of reassurance that, I, yes, I'm getting there. In this case, I did not do that. For five years, I wrote completely in the dark in terms of feedback. I just... I kept this to myself, and when I finally thought, yes, it's where I want it to be, I've gotten this narration so that it feels natural, so it's not intrusive or weird, then I gave it to my husband, and I gave it to my, uh, my editor, and a couple of other people to read, and it was the most terrifying time I've ever experienced as a writer. I kept thinking, if I've spent five years doing something that just doesn't work, I'm going to uh, jump off a bridge. No, I won't do that, but it, <laughs> I'm going to be really, 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 really mad. So, uh, oh, my poor husband, I kept, he kept saying, you're hovering. <laughs> and um, But uh, so, I, so I had to just about nail myself into the closet so I wouldn't hover. So he read it and my editor read it and they all said yeah this is really good and they liked it very much and i said well what about the narration the you know no first person in the narration and they said really he never says i and so that's when i thought hooray it's is the hardest thing you do as a writer is the thing nobody notices. It's like, you know, the ballerina on the stage. She doesn't want you to know her feet are bleeding. She wants you to believe that she really is weightless. Mm. So that made me really happy. I still, of course, went through several revisions after that. But when I knew that I had managed the narration the way I wanted it, then I felt really sure that I can make this book the, one, the way I wanted it to be. Let me ask you about the title, because Lacuna, obviously you've talked about how this book is made up of fragments and, and, and there, are, there are certain things which are missing. But there's also a very, very striking image in the first 50 pages, which recurs throughout the book. And it's a lacuna of a, of a different sort. So tell me, tell me about that. Well, this word lacuna is, well, it's a Latin word and it's also an English word. It's a little obscure but it's known to editors because editors know it as a missing piece of a manuscript, something that's missing. Physicians and uh, scientists know it as a, a passage or a hole, a passage through bone, and geologists know it also as a passage or a tunnel. So it means a gap, uh, something that's missing. But I loved the way I could use all of these different images and meanings to write a book about the parts of history that have been left out, the things that we don't know. Um, one of the things that Frida very, uh, says a number of times to Shepard in this novel is that the most important thing about a person 
is that part of their story you don't know? And this this ties everything together. The, the gossip as news, the stories you hear about someone that really don't tell you who they are, the stories in history that have been erased from our history books because they don't present us in the best of lights, the missing fragments and the tunnel, the passage that takes you from here to there that you really have to go through if you're going to get to the other side, to knowledge, to true knowledge of a person, of history. And this, of course, this tunnel under the sea, the sea cave that Shepard discovers as a boy that he swims through to the other side is the, it's the beginning and end of everything. He discovers early in the book that it's, it's a place of human bones. And so there's an association with death, but it's also it's also kind of like the the birth canal in a way, and yes. too, isn't it? And yeah. the more the more you look in the book, the more the more you see these these sort of mouths, these openings, which could be to swallow, or it could be sort of a sort of silent scream. And I, I even spotted the fact that Violet Brown lives in Tunnel Road. So it seemed to me there was a lot of there's a lot of tunneling going on in this book, and and it could be a, both a, a positive and a negative connotation attached to it. Exactly, and that's the wonder of revision because once you've drafted a novel and you know where it's going to go and what it's going to be about, then you can go back through and rewrite it 15 times, 20 times. And every time I did that, I put in a few more of those tunnels. I mean, it's wonderful how you can work the ending of a book all the way back to the beginning. I think that art really happens during revision. That's when you get to make everything shine. That's when you get to sprinkle the seeds of what is to come all the way through. So that in my novels, the very first paragraph tells you something about the end of the book. Everything is contained in everything. And that's the really exciting part. When I get to the last several drafts of a novel, when I'm holding the whole thing in my head, it's so exciting because everything is connected and I'm at the controls and it feels a lot like I'm sort of landing this giant 747. Not that I know what that's like, but I can imagine, you know, I'm just trying to bring this huge thing in for, for a landing so that everything comes together just right. Barbara Kingsolver. We were talking about her latest novel, The Lacuna, which won the 2010 Orange Prize. You can find out more about the book, as well as Barbara's other books, which include the best-selling Poisonwood Bible and Animal Vegetable Miracle, by going to faber.co.uk. That's all for this special edition of the Faber podcast, but I'll be back again soon with another programme, which will feature Marek Kahn on the consequences of climate change, and Louise Doughty on her new novel of loss and revenge, Whatever You Love. I hope you'll join me then, and until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.